Welcome back, everyone, to HIPSA's Health Policy Checkup. My name is Hanan Rakeen, a student at the University of Michigan and member of the HIPSA Advocacy Committee. Part of what drew me into health po policy actually was my work as a health equity activist. And along the way, I realized how important it was to be an advocate for healthcare reform. But what exactly does it mean to be an activist and what are ways that we can be more effective? Today's podcast episode will be diving deeper into what health policy is all about and how we can fight for more equitable and accessible healthcare. Who better to lead this discussion than someone currently leading a campaign whose sole mission is to fight for quality, affordable healthcare for everyone in America. Please help me welcome Margarita George. Margarita George is the Executive Director of Healthcare for America Now also known as HCAN. She was a co-founder of the campaign in 2008 and chief architect of the 47 state field program that helped win the Affordable Care Act. Margarita brings nearly three decades of experienced healthcare advocacy from national and state work. I know everyone listening is going to learn a tremendous amount from you, Margarita, and I just want to thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. So before we kick off, is there anything you want to add or should we just like dive deep into these questions? Let's dive in. Perfect. Um, so just to kick off, what is health policy and why is it important? Um, sure. Well, health policy is, uh, you know, from the perspective of those of us that are working on advocacy campaigns, health policy are really the proposals that we see in lawmaking bodies. So Congress, um, state legislatures, even parts of the administration, because the administration's agencies have a lot of power to change policy. So it can be, you know, you can find health policy in a range of places. And essentially what we do as advocates is we try to influence that policy into passage, right? We try to take policies that we know to be sound policies and put them in legislation so they can pass into law. And then we spend years, sometimes decades, implementing that policy and building on that policy. Do you typically go with what's being introduced in um, either House or Senate? Is that how you kind of like shift onto what you want to fight for or help push? Or I guess what's an effective way of going about that? Um, we do sometimes if legislators introduce legislation that we think is important or helpful or moves us forward. But actually a lot of times, by the time the public is seeing a bill, the bill and the health policy in that bill is actually the product of many years of work that, that are, that's gone before. So we typically, our uh, partners and allies have relationships with members of their state legislatures and members of Congress. And we are in pretty close collaboration with them on actually designing legislation. And sometimes that's because our allies will come to us and say, we've observed this problem, right? So we passed the Affordable Care Act, but oh, look at this six, seven years into implementation of the law, we've observed that despite having affordable coverage, surprise medical bills are not covered. Right. If somebody goes to the hospital, they went in an ambulance, they went to a hospital and they uh, had anesthesia and the anesthesia is not covered in their network. All of a sudden, even though they have insurance, they're walking away with 30, 40, 50,000, you know, just thousand dollars, um, thousands of dollars in medical debt. So over time, we sort of observed an unintended consequence or a gap in a law. 
And we started working with lawmakers to address that so that when those lawmakers came into a position in Congress, that they had enough uh, of a leadership role or they thought that they had the majority, then we can introduce that bill and advance that bill. So it really works both ways. You can work to develop, to sort of advance policies and develop a legislative strategy for them, or you can wait until members introduce policies, sometimes unexpectedly, that are very good policies and you, you can get on board with that policy and help try to advance it. Activist in healthcare, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Um, well, you know, one thing I'll say before I respond to that is there's lots of very good policy out there. Um, and policy is developed in academic institutions, research institutions, um, you know, in lots of different places in state and city and local government and federal government. So policy exists and uh, it's, there's a lot of it out there. Most of it doesn't become law, right? The policy that becomes law becomes law because of a strategy, um, an advocacy strategy to actually influence decision makers to turn it into law. That's where activism is really important because it is the activism of key constituencies that can push a law up the chain. Either it can make the policy a priority, whereas otherwise it might not be a priority, or it can shift the terms of the debate so that something, a policy that maybe not everybody supports garners more support enough to actually get enough votes to pass into law. So um, we spend actually a lot of time on activism, all different kinds of activism. And I think what makes, to me, the activists that are the most compelling activists are people that have a personal story to convey about the issue and they have been trained to convey that story. So the people that make good activists are people that have a story about impact. It doesn't, you don't have to convey it in very fancy terms. Sometimes the best storytellers are parents that come in and they've got, you know, twin daughters with leukemia or, you know, people that come in and they're a small business owner and they had to, you know, they just lost two employees because they, they couldn't afford the healthcare coverage. So I would say number one thing about activism is people that are willing to share their stories and perspectives and sort of get a little bit personal about it tend to be more effective um, activists than people that, that just don't, right? They might make a phone call and say, please, Senator, do this, but they don't sort of go that extra, that extra mile to say, here's why that this is really important to me. I've actually experienced and kind of struggled with this is kind of adopting the story based on who you're talking to. And so although we'd like to think healthcare, well, I mean, is a bipartisan issue. I know a lot of the times it's hard when trying to convey your story to Republicans, for example. I guess it won't hit home in a way that if we adopt that story or modify it in a different way, we could potentially get them on board. I guess, are there any tips that you have connecting with members? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there's, you know, really millions of great stories out there, but how you deliver your story really matters. I would say, um, you know, when you're thinking about how to use a story to move a decision maker, particularly if it's somebody that you don't know or somebody who's more conservative, you know, their ideology is more conservative, they don't have a record of supporting this kind of stuff. It is important to step back and just review what you know about the target, 
right? What do you know about this legislator? It might turn out that as you're thinking through what you know about this legislator, you might actually decide, well, hell, I'm not, I'm not the right person to talk to this guy. The right person to talk to this guy is somebody that lives in his, con- in his district, a constituent of his, you know, somebody that has a shared background with him or somebody that fits into a, a model or a constituency that you know he cares about. So for instance, if you are um, lobbying a lawmaker who's from a rural district um, and you might be from the most populous, right? Montana is a great example of this where, you know, Montana is a huge state, very, very rural. Um, if, I was gonna, um, if I was gonna lobby uh, the Republican Senator of Montana, I would not pick somebody from a city to be my to be my activist, right? I'd actually go out to like a cattle farmer, or um, you know somebody who was just an older person living out in rural Montana, mm-hmm. because I think that voice would actually resonate much better with Senator Danes than somebody from Missoula, That's right? So, so it's good to just think through. Okay, like let me pause and think about who is the person that I'm trying to influence? And that then gives you some insight about how you best deploy that story. To someone and they're just, there's no way anything you could say would ever connect with them or you just know they're very firm on what they stand for. I guess when you just kind of think, okay, like this isn't a a fight worth fighting for. Well, it's a good question. You know, I don't actually often get to that point to be honest. Oh, that's good. Um, uh, because on healthcare, I think healthcare is a little bit different than a lot of other issues because healthcare is a very personal issue to people. And it has historically been an issue that brings people together because it's universal. Right. And so while we don't always agree on right, what the right policy is to pay for healthcare or to deliver healthcare, you can go to anybody and talk to them about feeling healthy, having a sick relative, struggling to keep up with costs, right? You can have a very sort of nonpartisan conversation with them. Mm-hmm. And often that is where you start, right? In, in the beginning of the Affordable Care Act, you know, back in 2007, 2008, um, you know, we didn't have Republican support for the Affordable Care Act. And one thing that's changed over time is there is tremendous support now for Medicaid expansion, which is a fundamental part of that law. And so even in conservative states, West Virginia, uh, Arizona, you see that Medicaid has expanded and that has been a surprise to a lot of people, but it wasn't really a surprise to me, honestly, because I knew that at a certain point after so many constituents had come to their Republican lawmakers and said, look, I don't know, I vote Republican, I vote Democrat, you know, whatever. All I know is who you vote for really should have no bearing in whether or not you're able to take your child to the doctor. For sure. Yep. Right. So I just think on healthcare, we're particularly fortunate because mm-hmm. it actually enables you to get past a lot of the politics. And you can be very, very, very assertive just based on the moral case, right? Just on the moral case that at the end of the day, we are in a pandemic. This is the richest country in the world. It doesn't matter what you look like, where you live, how much money you have, there should be nobody in this country today that is going out without basic health care while billionaires are making record wealth, right? It's just common sense. So um, I think, you know, I don't often get to that point. I think 
the judgment that you have to make if you're trying to move a lawmaker who seems like this guy is not going to be with you is um, it's just a resource question, right? Is there something else that I could be doing um, that makes more sense? Or even if I can't move him on this policy, is it worth building the relationship? And I will say for some members, it's worth continuing to be in relationship with them because even if you're not going to move them on this issue, there's going to be a related issue that you can move that member on. And, you know, I'm thinking of uh, really powerful people in Congress, like, you know, Iowa, Senator Grassley, senior senator, very powerful. You know, there's many, many, many things that we will not agree with Senator Grassley on, but um, some things we will. And even when we can't get him where we need him on healthcare, we know down the road, he's gonna work with us on children's nutrition and SNAP. So at times that those relationships that you develop through your activism and your advocacy, they really become currency. And even if you can't sort of use them on the immediate thing, I always tend to think it's worth developing them because they'll they'll come in handy down the road. That's a really good way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. For you, why do you think specifically students um, and like getting introduced into the advocacy world is important? Because I know I'm sure when meeting with a representative or meeting with a senator, they you different opinions from different people. And if I guess they're always hearing from lobbyists um, and then maybe people who are running national organizations and then they they hear from students i'm sure that could be perceived differently yeah it can be perceived differently but it actually i think works to uh it works to the advantage of students so one thing i'm going to say i know this sounds very cynical but this has been my observation Mm -hmm. on healthcare, most decision makers think young people don't care apparently apparently y'all young people you guys think of yourselves as being pretty invincible and you're not thinking about stuff like healthcare. So um, it actually gets people's attention. It gets your, you know, it gets folks' attention when young people come in, when students come in and say, I'm really concerned about healthcare, right? And I'm concerned, be- and, and you know, a lot of young people are increasingly concerned about healthcare because, you know, we see attacks on the Affordable Care Act, right? Just a few years ago, when President Trump took office, his number one priority was rolling back the Affordable Care Act. If that had happened, people between the ages of 18 and 26 that currently can stay on their parents' plans would have lost coverage, right? Uninsured, the numbers of uninsured people that were young people under 30 people were really, really high before the Affordable Care Act. So, and now that there's a pandemic, what we're actually seeing is soaring rates of chronic illness, of mental health, of substance abuse. I was reading a study yesterday about telehealth and the expansion of telehealth during the pandemic. And it's, you know, it's uh, this forced use of telehealth has popularized it, but where it's gotten the most traction is actually for psychiatric care and for substance abuse. And so as psychiatric care, mental illness, substance abuse, as these become increasingly destigmatized and actually treated as disease, young people are going to have more and more influence because it's often young people who are struggling, you know, through the pandemic, for instance, with lots of issues because their entire world has been sort of shaken up. So I actually think people of all ages are really important to, um, to lobby, but it is interesting. I've noticed on prescription drugs, for instance, which is a huge issue in this Congress, and we're gonna see 
probably action, really historic action on prescription drugs. We've been working on it for 20 years. You know, uh, lawmakers expect seniors to come in and talk about how expensive their drugs are. They expect people with disabilities to come in. What they don't expect is when you have a student or a grad student come in and say, hey, you know what, I have insurance, but I still have to pay so much money out of pocket for my insulin or my asthma inhaler or my antidepressants that half the time I can't access this medicine. That really is sort of eye-catching to lawmakers because it's totally unexpected. It helps us push for more aggressive reform because we can make the case, this isn't just a seniors issue, it really is an issue that impacts people of all ages, whether they're insured or not. And that gives us then the wherewithal to say, Congress has to take more comprehensive action. I think a lot of students are directly you know, impacted. I think a lot of students are really worried. I mean, you folks that are in school, you're thinking about, you know, getting through, you know, it's very stressful. You're getting through a lot of you guys are going to school and you're working. You're thinking about what you're going to do afterwards. We're in a really tough economic situation. You're graduating generally with tons and tons of debt. Mm -hmm. People are very worried about getting a job that's going to get them benefits. Right. And we've seen really a spike in polling around this. Right. So, um, you know, it's one thing to sort of be in school and be able to depend on your parents' plan or the health services that you have at your university. Once you're out in the real world, you know, surprise medical bills was a huge issue for a lot of young people, right? They're like, oh my God, what if I'm just out with my friends hanging out and I get hit by a cab, right? Or I get into a car accident. I get taken to the hospital. Next thing you know, on top of my $80,000 of college debt, I now have a surprise, terrible surprise medical bill that is, you know, $50,000. So I just think the rising cost of healthcare, I mean, we're going to have this problem for a long time in this country. We have a for-profit system, the rising price of healthcare, rising cost of prescription drugs, right? Like all of these things, folks increasingly at all ages are thinking about them. I also think that um, it used to be that most marketing of prescription medicines was really to physicians and to older people. Uh, but that's not true anymore, right? Think about who prescription drug corporations are marketing to. They're marketing to young people, right? On Facebook, you know, it's all like the antidepressants. They're marketing to people with dogs, right? Anybody have, like, if anybody's listening has a dog, right? How many people out there have dogs that are on prescriptions? Guess what? 15 years ago, we didn't have dogs on prescriptions. Dogs did not take allergy medicine. So like this industry is figuring out a way to open up new markets and young people are a really important new market as, you know, both college students and younger. Incorporate student activism into like our future careers. If we're not, like if our end goal isn't being in a grassroots organization and it's not being a lobbyist, how do we still fight this fight without, you know, that being our sole responsibility, if that makes sense? So much better, by the way, than being a full-time advocate. I mean, most change that's made in America is not made by people like me. It's not made by full-time advocates. Most change in America and most effective lobbying is made by people that have regular jobs. They're doctors, they're lawyers, they're, um, they own hardware stores, they're decorators, they are florists, right? And they take a few minutes out every now and then to go make a phone call, send an email, or they might take a half day out to go to a town hall or, you know, that, that is really the substance of what makes things happen. And in fact, here in Washington, DC, 
we make a distinction between people like me who are professional advocates and folks like you guys who we call RPs, real people. <laughs> and real people have a lot more power, right? Like when we talk about RPs, I mean, all day long people call me and they say, do you have any RPs that live in Virginia Spanberger's district, right? Um, Nappy Spanberger's district. Um, so I think it's, it's actually, you have much more influence by being, you know, just living your lives as ordinary, you know, folks that are out doing the thing and then spending a few, you know, a little bit of time here or there. And I think it's pretty easy to participate as an activist that way. I mean, I started as an activist that way. I never went to school thinking that I was going to end up being an organizer or an activist or an advocate. In fact, if you had tried to persuade me of that 30 years ago, I would have laughed in your face. I would have just said, you, I'm going to do what? Spend all day talking to members of Congress while I'm wearing shiny shoes and pearls. There's no way I'm going to do that. But yet here I am. So real people can do. And like, how can we stay informed about like what our current drug, healthcare, anything around like affordable healthcare bills that are being introduced? Like we know what to do and what to fight for and who to talk to. I think there's a few different things people can do. So one is follow the news, but don't follow all the news, pick a couple. If you spend all your time, I mean, we literally pay press shops to do nothing but read the news all day long. And then they like email us all day, oh, this, you know, this thing. Mm -hmm. So like pick a couple and just stick with those couple, follow the news and see what's going on. Follow your local news. A lot of the local news is actually much more relevant. So I think that's one thing that people can do to sort of stay active. Join an organization or a listserv. Right. So, you know, you and I were talking about AMSA, the American Medical Students Association. I've worked with them for years on many, many, many things. Right. If you just want to streamline and you don't want to have to sort of figure it all out yourself, join an organization, sign up for HCANS list, sign up for AMSA, you know, pick your organization, Families USA, Communicate. There's lots of great healthcare organizations out there. And, you know, sign up for e alerts. And generally, they have folks that are monitoring. I know I talk with the AMSA folks all the time. Every time there's a development in Congress and you know, I'm on the phone, hey, this is about to happen. If you have folks in this area or that area, it'd be good if they could call their member. That makes it easy, pretty easy to participate. You know, Facebook groups are, are very easy to participate in. And I just think um, it's a good practice to be in touch with your legislative offices. So I would probably just log on. I do this with my... Um, before I lived in DC and, you know, when I actually had a state Senator, I, you know, I would log on pretty regularly. I had, I just had a, you know, a bookmark on my, and I, you know, what are they coming out? Cause usually your members of Congress, your state representatives, they'll put out uh, releases to let you know, oh, I'm introducing this bill. I'm introducing that bill. So I think there's lots of ways it's, I have to say it's so much easier today to do this because of all the digital resources and digital communication, even lobbying is much easier. You know, the Democrats, generally are, are lobbying over Zoom. So, you know, if you, yeah, if you wanted to start lobbying, now would be a great time to start lobbying because we, Democrats actually don't want you to schlep to Washington DC to lobby them because the Capitol is closed because of COVID restrictions. You know, um, you know it's, that's less true with Republicans. Republicans are still doing a lot of lobbying in person, but, you know, being in touch with the office and just saying, hi, my name is, I'd like to talk to the healthcare staffer in the office. And, you know, boom, you spend 15 minutes talking to that person just to let them know I'm a constituent here. I really care about this issue and that issue. Um, and oftentimes 
uh, signing up for e-alerts from your legislative office is great because then they'll flag when the member is out and about, right? So like often this week coming up, it's the President's Day recess. Many of the members will be out in district. They'll be at events. That's a great time to meet your member. It's true. What do you think are the some of the most like effective forms of activism? I tend to think anything that is direct contact with a lawmaker is probably the most effective. So anything that you're able to do in person with a lawmaker, if he's having a town hall, go to it. Go to it, right? I mean, in there's really no substitute for in-person contact. Uh, mostly because so much of communication is body language and you can learn a lot from your member just, you know, just based on his demeanor or her demeanor. So I think that's, uh, that's probably the most effective. I do also think calling the office is uh, pretty effective. They log calls in offices, so they know who's calling. And then a third thing that's effective, that's a little bit higher bar thing is if you, um, write, if you respond to something in the newspaper with a letter to the editor and you mention your member's name, that's going to definitely get their attention. So most members have staff that just track media all the time and they, you know, are just all day doing Google searches on their boss's names. So a lot of what we do in um, states, for instance, is our partners will monitor the media for you know, what is Senator Manchin's position on this thing or that thing or the other thing. And when they see a local headline, they will find somebody, um, one of their members to respond to it. Could be a fireman, could be a mine worker, could be a stay-at-home mom. And often we'll work with people on letters to the editor and get those placed. And we always mention the lawmaker's name because that's what really gets their attention. Not surprising, right? When If, if your name was featured in a news article, yeah, exactly. morning, you'd be like, whoa, what's going what, what are they saying about? about me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could we could we could you actually go into more detail? Like what is a letter to the editor? And I know there's yeah. also op-eds. What's the difference? When do we know which one to use? Mm-hmm. Letter to the editor is very brief. So it's you see a headline that catches your catches your attention, you read the article. Something in the article incenses you or is wrong or is a perspective that you don't share and you want to get your perspective out there. And so you write up, you know, very short, 150 words um, that says, dear editor, in response to X article, uh, I am a medical student and I completely disagree, you know, based on what I know, blah, blah, blah. So like just a few things about your experience, super, super short. Most newspapers will not print letters to the editor that are over 150 words. You type it up, spell check it, sign your name to it. You look on the newspaper's website and it, there's usually instructions for how you submit a letter to the editor. And then, you know, if the editor chooses your letter, they'll often te- email you or call you and just confirm, are you so-and-so okay? Just confirming that you are in fact a real person. We're gonna publish your letter tomorrow. So letters to the editor are very responsive, right? It's almost like a back and forth with the newspaper where you're tagging something and you have the opportunity to present an alternative point of view. Op-eds are related, but they're different. An op-ed is a long form piece. That's usually 700, 800 words. Mm -hmm. And it can be on a topic, doesn't need to be responding to something in the paper, but it should be on a timely topic. So for instance, um, you know, right now, we're we're in a big budget debate. There's about to be a, a SCOTUS hearing. Um, you know, you pick something that's like in the mix, right? Like I don't advise people doing op-eds on stuff 
that's not that are not timely just because editors are probably not going to print that even if it's a very good piece. So you write up the op-ed, you submit it to the editor. It's very helpful if you have a relationship with the editor. Not everybody does. We often work with media firms that have relationships in order to get the, the op-ed placed. Um, you know, the op-ed should be, you, get, you guys should like, you know, look in the paper and see how they're, you know, they're, they're pretty colloquial. They don't have, they're not policy papers really, um, but they all make a case, right? And so often what we do is we, we have, we've had actually lots of AMSA folks do op-eds where they say, you know, hello, I'm a medical student or I'm in my residency and I'm treating people at a public hospital. And I can affirm that, you know, without Medicaid expansion, many, many, many people are struggling through this pandemic. Here's a couple of examples why, here's what I think Congress should do about it, you know, and then a little byline at the end. So it's a little bit of a, um, it's more work, but you have much more control over your message. And again, you know, editors are generally looking for new voices and credible voices. I think one thing that's important when you're writing an op-ed is you're much more likely to get published if you are a person that has standing on that topic. So that is if you don't aren't, have no relationship to immigration and you're, you know, you're not an immigrant, you're not from an immigrant family, you don't work with immigrants, but you just have a general point of view on immigrants, you're less likely to get published than somebody that, for instance, works in a refugee center or has a personal history as an immigrant in this country. So it, it is, I think it is important when you're authoring an op-ed to, you know, be a person that has the standing to, to comment on that topic. Yeah, so I know op-eds and letter to the editors are, I guess, like two forms, like I get two tools that you yeah. can use to like shed light and mm-hmm. on a specific healthcare issue. What are some effective tools I guess, besides those two that you found throughout your, I mean, career that you think would be important for students that are like just starting off? Yeah, well, you know, I actually think the most effective thing and the most persuasive thing is just direct conversation with people. It's really interesting to me because um, a lot of times people, and I actually, I'm going to say I'm very guilty of this. A lot of times people who have an opinion about a political issue or a policy don't actually talk to the people that are closest to them about that. Hmm. Right. So like, I don't come from a political family. I've never talked to my family about politics and I've worked in politics for 30 years. But uh, for those of you all that, um, you know, the most effective way to convey a message or to get people to understand an issue is to just talk to them about it, even though it may seem weird to be like, hey, did you read about this? And what do you think about this issue? But that is actually the most, if we're thinking about what, it, what are the things that most move public opinion, it's the, it's the in-person contact. And, you know, I spent 15 years before I came to DC as a door knocker, just knocking on people's doors and talking to them about issues. And that is undoubt- listening to people's perspective and then sharing your perspective in sort of an empathetic way is actually the best way to convey information to people. So I would say for all of you um, that are out there and you're on campus or you're with your colleagues, friends, family members, the best thing to do is talk to them, talk to them about these issues. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I, I used to, I mean, I guess still now, um, being an activist, I've always communicated with a lot of like my fellow peers and just like colleagues in the, in the field. And there are always, 
a group of people who are very hesitant on speaking with members of Congress, or I guess like any lawmaker, just because they're viewed as like superior, you know, they have, they hold power, they won't care what I say, it's typically a lot of things that people say, and there's just kind of like, I know I always hear, they won't even answer if I reach out, and um, like, what are the odds that me, I guess, putting my time into scheduling a meeting, or just like drafting an email or sending a letter would do anything. And I know some people have had, I guess, bad experiences with some policymakers and they just kind of give up in that aspect and they want to find other ways. Is there any advice you'd give? To um, I mean, I would say a couple of things to those people. I mean, democracy is not a spectator sport. It's not right. Like either you participate and you exercise some agency or things tend to go to hell, right? When there's less participation, we have a real problem. So I would say that, and then, you know, on this question of does it matter and would I be able to influence? Uh, it's it's hard to say, uh, but you know, you're gonna have much more opportunity of influencing a lawmaker if you actually do something as opposed to don't do something, right? So like uh, most people, whether it's a lawmaker or anybody else, you don't move them on the first try. I mean, think about that, right? You're out with your friends and three of them wanna to go to Indian and you wanna to go to Mexican. It's probably gonna take you more than one try to convince them. You might have to go at it one-on-one, -on -one. Win, win one over, get them back, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. that's just like, yeah. it's like life. And so lobbying mm -hmm. is just sure. activism, lobbying. It's like life, right? Like you don't win people over on the mm -hmm. first try. I mean, think about the debates that you've had with your parents. Right. Like, I mean, I, I have, you know, nieces and nephews that are college age and, you know, they um, their parents wanted them to go to go to school nearby and they wanted to go to school in California. That didn't get resolved in one conversation. Right. Eventually, my niece moved her mom to the right position, but it, it was after several conversations. So even on basic things, on things that are important to us, we understand that there's going to be an iterative approach and that you have to try different things to move people and moving members of Congress is, is no different at the end of the day, right? There's an iterative approach. And sometimes you might talk to that member and you don't get, you, you and I could say the same thing verbatim to a member of Congress. And I might get a different response just because I'm a different messenger. So I just think that's all part of sort of stepping back and thinking, making the conversation really not about you, but about what it is, the, what's the objective here, right? We are having this conversation with a purpose to move this member to support a thing that we know is important to us and is gonna help people like us, people that we love, people that we care about, people that we serve. So I would say, um, you know, just to keep those few things in mind, you know, lobbying, I always say to people, lobby, people are like, oh, lobbying in Congress, that must be so hard. I was like, it's, it's not really all that, it's not that much harder than trying to, you know, get your mailman to actually deliver the mail on the porch instead of like on the curb. It's just the thing, right? Like you, there's an iterative approach. You have to have a strategy. That's true. And with the strategy, do you find that, I mean, like typically when meeting with members of Congress, every single member, regardless of their party is like completely different. They have different stances. Oh and, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to say I lobby on both. I've lobbied Republicans, Democrats, and, um, you know, and, and I work very much on healthcare. I work very much on the democratic side, but um, there are some real problems on the Democratic side, right? I, I often disagree with Democratic members and members of, of the staff. And sometimes the disagreement isn't even on the policy. On the fundamentals of the policy, we agree. 
I don't, we might disagree on how to get there. Right. What's the priority right now, right? So, uh, and often that's the case because my experience overwhelmingly is that people on the progressive and the democratic and the moderate side, you know, they on issues like prescription drug negotiations, even Republicans agree with us. Everybody agrees. The question is how quickly do we get there? What's the right pathway? How much accountability? And then people sort of get caught up in the micro stuff, in the minutia, and they forget the essential thing, which is that there are literally millions and millions and millions of people in this country that can't get access to affordable medicine. And not just Alzheimer's medicine and cutting edge medicine, we're talking insulin, asthma inhalers and EpiPens here, right? Mm -hmm. So like sometimes to overcome those sort of nuanced differences, you have to step back and say, well, let's just keep in mind here what it is that we're trying to do. Because if you are a student or you are a senior or you're a single mom trying to afford insulin, for your two children, you don't have infinite time for us to debate the merits of this, that, or the other, right? You need us to move quickly and take action. Somebody's life is at stake. Still meet um, with members of Congress. I typically research just like, so I get a, a glimpse of what they're doing, yep. um, what they voted for, what they haven't voted for yet, and what um, I guess they vote against. And that's kind of like with the extent of my preparation is kind of like reviewing that member. And then I'm just so I can also, I'll typically start off with like thinking that member like, oh, I saw that you recently voted or are introducing this just to kind of like build already like a, a good basis. Are there any yeah. other yeah. tips, I guess, that you would suggest? That's a great one. I mean, you just gave a great one, like do a little bit of research. Like I'm not talking write a term paper. Yeah. I mean, like an hour on Google, a little bit of research on your on who you're visiting with mm -hmm. and establish a rapport, just like you would in any other relationship that's important to you. If you went in to you know, meet your professor and this professor was somebody you wanted to be your advisor, you would research them. You would find out, okay, wh what's their area of study? Have they written any books lately? Should I, you know, should I take a look at the, the back cover so that you could go in and demonstrate to that person, look, I took the time to actually understand what your perspective is. And you're trying to build a rapport with them because you understand that that relationship is then going to be important later on. So I think that's, I think that's really important. I also think it's important to um, ask them questions and, and listen, right? Like I often ask uh, members questions uh, when I don't know much about them, you know, on criminal justice issues, when I'm lobbying Republicans, I don't know much about those issues yet. But I'll often say to the staffer or to the member, if the member is there, what's what spiked your interest in this issue? Why, why are you so interested in this issue? And actually, often the member will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm impacted by this issue. Here's why I care about it. Here's why I care about healthcare, right? Here's why I care about people who have arrest records and conviction records. Here's why I care about second chance employment. And a lot of times that member will tell you something from his own experience. It's actually in the vast majority of cases, it is somebody's own experience right. that has led them to take on that issue and champion that issue as a lawmaker. Precisely. If you were to give, I guess to wrap up, if you were to do a like health policy advocacy crash course type of thing, um, mm -hmm. what would you put, I guess, the top of your list? What are things that um, I guess, tools and resources that students or, I mean, I guess anyone should develop, have access to and learn. And mm -hmm. then what are like some direct tips that you would give for students who is like, this would be their first time pushing lobbying for anything and they want to get involved. I guess, what would you suggest? 
Um, I would say if you're, if you've never lobbied before and you're just getting into it, I would, uh, one sort of just scan the news and see what's in play right now. What's the legislation in play right now? So if you're lobbying at the federal level, the legislation in play is the Build Back Better Act. And I would just do a little bit of research on that. Uh, two is I would probably buddy up with somebody, right? Like I would get somebody to come with me on the visit and sort of do it to, you know, do it together. The good thing about doing that is then you don't sort of have to do all the talking, but also afterwards you can debrief, right? You can sort of say, well, here's what I heard. Is that what you heard? What did you think about this? What did you think about that? So I, I'm a big fan of getting people to sort of lobby in groups. I'm a big fan of the prep work, some of the stuff that you suggested too, right? Like how has this member voted? Where is he from? Right. Like, you know, anything that you want to learn, just like if you're having a conversation with anybody, if you know a few things about them, it gives you a heads up. Right. So, you know, I used to um, knock on doors and I pretty quickly figured out knocking on doors in the deep south on Fridays and Saturdays that if you didn't know anything about football, which I didn't, um, if you didn't know anything about football, you're going to have a pretty hard time striking up a conversation. I wasn't there to talk to them about football, but you got to start somewhere. Start with what that person is interested in and then move in. So I just think, um, and the other, the final thing I would say is remember if you're lobbying for the first time, it's just the first time, there's going to be many times and you're going to improve over time, just like anything that you do. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And, you know, in a year, people are going to be talking to you about lobby visits and you'll be like, yeah, lobby visits. I've done like 300 of them. I can attest to that. I remember the first, the first meeting I ever had with a member of Congress. I said nothing. I was there with a couple people, but I was just so nervous. Yeah. Um, and I and was then you get the hang of it. It's very funny. I, um, yeah. you know, I work with a, a lot of activists and states, people of all ages, and like the first time you take them to lobby, they're like dressed up in their Sunday best, yeah. and they all got like <laughs> notebooks, and it's it's like a whole big thing. And then you know, like a year in it's like jeans and a, and a yeah. sweater, <laughs> just like jeans and a sweater. And like, they probably don't even have a notebook. Like they got like a scrap of paper and they're going to mm-hmm. write. Down. So, so anyway, I just think it's, um, it's like anything else, right? You practice it, you get better and yeah. your skills develop. You start to feel a level of comfort. I actually think the most important thing about doing it a lot is that it really helps you understand that when it comes to members of Congress or members of your state legislature, decision makers who are elected leaders, um, you're in control, not them. They work for you, not the other way around. Yes. And so you yep. should feel very, you know, obviously be polite, you know, develop a rapport. But at the end of the day, you are there to say to them, hello, member of Congress that I helped get elected, who works for me. Here's my point of view, and I actually expect you to consider my point of view as you're making decisions. And by the way, if you don't, you should know that I'm going to be watching you, right? Like I'm invested here and I'm going to be watching you. So um, what I really like to see with people after lobbying over year, over the years is that they sort of take on a little bit of that swagger, understanding that fundamentally this democracy only works if people are in charge of it. And there are wonderful lawmakers out there who are committed public servants, but it's really up to us to make sure they are delivering mm-hmm. on the things that they said that they were going to do. Yeah, and exactly on that, I think also a big thing that 
we should all keep in mind is we elected them as constituents of their district. Mm -hmm. We hold the power to like keep them in office or not. So of course they want to like appease to us as much as possible. Um, And if there's a big body of people from that, from their district talking about the same exact thing, then they're gonna be like, oh my God, like so many people from my district want me to vote for this. If I want to like, it absolutely gets their attention when people in their district, it's much more powerful than somebody running an ad or a DC advocate. You know, I was in a lobby visit with Senator Manchin Monday on Monday. And, um, you know, I said to Senator Manchin's staff, I heard the Senator on the radio talking to constituents in West Virginia and a bunch of constituents in West Virginia sent me the radio clip. That's how I heard it. And I said that purposely to the staffer to let her know mm-hmm. constituents in West Virginia are listening to what Senator Manchin says. And I promise you, they are taking it all very seriously. And she said right away, listen, anytime that you are hearing from our from constituents in our state, we want to hear about it. That's our number one priority. Yes. Right. So um, it is actually true. Like this system works if enough constituents get together and they issue their demands and they create real accountability with members, remarkable things can happen. And we've seen it over time, right? I mean, every sing- I feel like every single bill we've ever passed in Congress, uh, people spent months telling me why we were never gonna pass that bill, right? When I came to DC to pass the fourth, we're never gonna pass healthcare reform. What are you talking, we can't outlaw preexisting conditions. That's just never gonna happen, MJ. What are you talking about? but it's happened, right? And then, oh, but you're never gonna be able to implement it. And the Democrats lost that. It's implemented, we're 10 years in, 12 years in, it's implemented. You know, Trump got elected, his first agenda item was to repeal the Affordable Care Act. The conservatives who all opposed the ACA controlled every lever of government. I mean, everybody, there's no way we can save it. Oh my God, what are we gonna do? There's no way, of course there's a way that is just about, you know, building enough activism to exert the lever, the levels of power that we need, right? We will, when we have enough power, we can influence an outcome mm-hmm. um, and, you know, democracy works, right? So we have to have confidence um, that that is true and then act accordingly. Otherwise, you know, if we if we don't believe that and we're not really willing to try it and we're not willing to work through that system, we're going to pretty find we're going to pretty quickly find a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, people who say nothing can happen, they don't try. And then guess what? Nothing happens. Exactly. And we start with a group of people. There's all those like cliche quotes, but they're so true. If like, we don't do anything about it, then who is? Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, who? oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Who can fix this? It's like, I don't know why you guys are looking around. Like, it's Exactly. Us. Thank you. Yep. There's no cavalry. It's us. It's, it's us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, thank you so much for joining Margaret and taking time out of your day to talk to us. I'm sure so many of the listeners have learned so much from you and your experiences. Is, is there anything that you want to close off on? Any words of wisdom? I don't think I have any words of wisdom. <laughs> I would just say, um, you know, I was a student activist uh, from the time I was in you know, high school and have been an activist my entire Life and I spend lots of times as an lots of time as an activist doing stuff that has nothing to do with my healthcare work. So I just think, you know, we have a responsibility to take action to make the world a better place, both for ourselves, for our families, for the people around us, mm-hmm. and um, everybody should do as much as they can, um, you know, with with respect to that. 
And don't worry so much about, is it perfect, this, that, or the other. The most important thing is that we make an effort and that we work together and we you know, bring other people together to do it. And really that is it. When we have had great victories in this country, whether it's passage of social security, Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, it is because people have come together, uh, all kinds of regular people, RPs come together and they make things happen at the local level and at the national level. So um, I really, um, you know, really encourage people to do it, get out there and give it a shot. Thank you. Well, we, I hope that inspired, I guess, and encouraged some of us RPs listening um, that we are <laughs> capable of making change and that it starts with us because if we don't do it and we look around like nothing's ever going to get done. So that's right. Well, well said. Thanks you so much for having me. Um, it was a thank lot you of so fun. much for being here. Thank you.